Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, them, him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who, had a pro who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Gospel of the Lord. Are you wrestling with doubts this morning? Are we all struggle with our confidence in the gospel at one time or another. Uh, sometimes we doubt because of intellectual challenges to Christianity. 
Uh, some folks doubt God's word because of a desire to disobey it. And of course, sometimes we doubt in times of pain or suffering or loss that we have experienced or are going through. Whatever the circumstances, Christians, all of us at some point or another, find ourselves crying out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And on the very first Easter Sunday, two followers of Jesus were experiencing extreme doubts about Jesus. They had been hoping that Jesus of Nazareth would be the one to fulfill God's promise to redeem Israel, to deliver them from Rome's grasp and restore them to life under God's rule and God's blessing through God's anointed king as as God intended and as God had promised. Just one week earlier, this same Jesus of Nazareth had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and people waving palm branches. They expected Jesus to be crowned as king, the king who would deliver God's people and rule them on God's behalf. But their hopes were shattered by a Roman cross. Instead of being received in Jerusalem as the king, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own friends, and he was rejected by the leaders in Jerusalem. Instead of a crown of gold, he's given a crown of thorns. They mocked his claim to be king. And instead of overthrowing Rome, Rome publicly humiliates him, tortures him, and executes him. And they were hoping that this Jesus would save Israel. They weren't wrong in that hope, but they are unable now to square that hope with the reality of the cross. And yes, they've heard this tale, this idle tale, it was called by uh, some women, from some women about an empty tomb and an angelic proclamation that Jesus is alive, but they haven't seen him, they have no idea what to make of any of it. And so it is that we find these two disciples on the road, and in verse 14, they are having an intense conversation. This is not idle chit-chat here. Verse 15, the word that says, it's translated as discussing, uh, is often translated as arguing. Not that they're necessarily angry with each other or even having a debate, but they're analyzing this together, the events and things they've heard and things they've seen, and trying to make it make sense. But they just can't. Their hopes remain crushed. Their confidence in Jesus as Savior lies in pieces on the ground. So what's going on here is that Luke has returned to his purpose in writing this whole gospel account, which he told us very helpfully all the way at the beginning of chapter 1, I believe it's 1 verse 4, to give his reader certainty concerning the things that have been taught. In other words, to give the reader confidence in the gospel. Now, Cleopas and the other guy, we don't know his name, other guy could be Gal, I guess. I mean, there's a theory that could be Cleopas's wife, but uh, they're in an odd sort of historical situation here because they are followers of Jesus who had rightly placed their hope in him as the Redeemer, but they have no place for the cross in their theology, and they aren't even sure that the resurrection really happened. So nowadays, if we encounter someone like that who says they're a follower of Jesus, 
but they have no place for the cross in their theology and they don't even think the resurrection is real, we rightly conclude that they're not really followers of Jesus at all, right? You can't be a follower of Jesus without trusting in his death and resurrection. But when they woke up on the first Easter morning, no followers of Jesus at that point understood the cross or the resurrection quite yet. They had rightly trusted in Jesus, were following him. Even you know, Peter has that good confession that Jesus is the Christ, but they don't see how the cross fits into that and don't know anything about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So their confidence is shaken. They are filled with disappointment, with discouragement, with sorrow, with confusion, with doubt. They lack confidence in the gospel, just as you and I often lack confidence. And the story of the road to Emmaus shows us how we can grow in confidence in Christ, even in the face of the challenges uh, to that confidence and the things that we encounter in this life. For a general sort of outline, if you can call it one, we'll have one main point about the nature of the problem itself and then two basic points about what God's solution looks like. So first, what is the issue? Why do we wrestle with our confidence in the truth of the gospel? And what we see in today's text is that it is fundamentally a spiritual problem that requires a supernatural solution. And having said that, that this is a spiritual problem, unbelief is what I'm going to say, I want to quickly clarify something. I mentioned that we often experience doubt in times of pain or grief or loss. Uh, sometimes we do get ourselves into those unpleasant messes, but quite often the suffering we experience comes through no fault of our own. We're not always responsible for the circumstances that we face, but we are responsible for our response. And when I say response, the proper response to things might very well include grief and lament or even frustration. Yet Jesus wept. A good number of the psalms that we've even sung express grief or even, even anger toward God. And the difference between biblical lament and unbelieving grumbling is not how we feel, but whether we trust in God, whether we entrust those, those feelings and those situations to God. I want to clarify this so you don't come away thinking that you're automatically in sin if you don't have it all together, that it's automatically unbelief if you are grieving or angry or discouraged. My point is not to police your emotions and tell you how to feel, but to encourage you to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, let's take a closer look at what the nature of the problem is. As I said, it's a spiritual problem. We see this as soon as Cleopas and What's-His-Face uh, meet Jesus. They don't know that it's him. Verse 16 says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is very similar, if you've read Luke's sequel called the Book of Acts, very similar to the story of Paul. Uh, Paul was also on the road, in this case to Damascus, and on the road, he also unexpectedly met Jesus. And Paul's eyes were kept from seeing not only Jesus, but anything else for that matter. He was struck blind. So in both accounts, their physical vision is impaired or taken away altogether in order to show them and us, the reader, their own spiritual blindness. 
In the case of today's text, this leads to a really ironic conversation with Jesus that's almost comical. Jesus comes up to them as they're having this conversation and says, yeah, so what you talking about? And they stop walking and stand there sad-faced on the first Easter morning in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. And then Cleopas, the only one whose name we know, answers him and almost seems to berate Jesus for his ignorance of what's going on. Are you the only person who doesn't know about this? Uh, Tabidi Anyabwile, in his little commentary on Luke, says, Imagine being known for asking Jesus whether he knew about the crucifixion, right? I think he was probably familiar, uh, but it gets worse. He not only asks Jesus if he knew about it, he then proceeds to explain it to him in great detail. Cleopas recounts for Jesus all the things that have happened, which we, of course, as the readers already know about, and so does Jesus. Luke has this, we call it dramatic irony, where we see their ignorance, and it's just stunning, it's almost comical. They think that Jesus is ignorant and proceed to try to open his eyes through a report of current events, when in fact they are the ones who are ignorant and need Christ to open their eyes with the word of God. So skipping ahead here to verse 25. Jesus puts a finer point on the problem of their spiritual blindness as he says, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So they are foolish and they are slow of heart to believe. Their mysterious traveling companion, in their eyes, surprisingly asserts that he's not the ignorant one, Cleopas and not Cleopas, are the ignorant ones. What exactly does it mean that they are foolish and slow of heart? Well, foolishness in Scripture is not a lack of IQ points or uh, education. It's the opposite of wisdom and discernment. It's exemplified in Psalm 14 by the fool who says in his heart there is no God. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fool despises any wisdom or instruction that might lead him to the fear of the Lord, lead him to consider his life in light of his accountability to God. It's a resistance to any knowledge of his creator. Instead, the fool lives to gratify his own desires and live for whatever pursuits, pleasures are in front of him. In Romans 1, Paul shows us that the root of foolishness is that in our fallen nature, as he says it, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to honor God or give thanks to him. So, to avoid knowledge of him, professing to be wise, we become fools, and our foolish hearts are darkened. Theology nerds call this the noetic effects of the fall. That means the fall impacts our minds and our thinking, not necessarily by making us less intelligent. There are some very intelligent people who don't believe and resist God, but what the fall does is turn whatever intellectual powers we have toward the task of rejecting God, of suppressing the truth, always coming up with a reason for not believing the heart is the heart of the problem. We resist believing what God has spoken. We resist trusting God. 
And even on this side of conversion, as Christians, we are simultaneously saints and sinners, and that must mean that we simultaneously believe and desperately need God's ongoing help with our unbelief. And that is our key obstacle to our confidence in the gospel. Not the circumstances we face, not persecution, not even intellectual challenges to those belief. Those are merely opportunities that our unbelieving hearts, the sin that continues in us, might seize. So the basic problem is not outside of us, but inside of us, that we are foolish and slow of heart to believe, to trust God. So I mentioned this last week, uh, and I think there's an even finer point on it today, that this raises some excellent questions about the relationship between faith and reason. And this is a good place just to say a few things about that as a complicated and debated relationship as well. Uh, last week I said that Luke is using this whole chapter to make the point that our confidence rests in the Scriptures, we see both the necessity and the sufficiency of, of Scripture at work. Necessity, meaning the followers of Jesus, what they most need here is to understand the Word of God. The Word of God is what they need. It is necessary. And the sufficiency, the Word of God, ought to have been enough for them to understand the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, oh, oh, foolish ones, you should have seen this. And we can even talk about the clarity of Scripture. The reason they didn't get it was not the fault of Scripture. It wasn't there's something wrong with the Bible, but it was their own fault, their own foolishness. So the Bible is clear and necessary and sufficient. So does that mean that there's no place for apologetics, no room for things like rational arguments for the existence of God or responses to objections like the prob uh, problem of evil for demonstrations of the reliability of Scripture based on history, archaeology, those sorts of things? Are, are those unnecessary? Maybe they're even wrong, since uh, we, we're supposed to trust Scripture alone. Well, of course, I don't think those things are wrong. Here in Luke, even as Luke is making this point about resting on the testimony of Scripture, we see Jesus himself using rational uh, evidence, rational arguments, and, and even showing evidence. In today's text, God finally does open up the eyes of, of Cleopas and Anonymous so that they visually recognize Jesus and become eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. In next week's text, we'll see that Jesus invites his followers to touch him and to watch him eat a piece of broiled fish to prove that he is bodily risen from the dead and not merely a ghost or, or a vision. A ghost can't eat a piece of broiled fish. So Jesus is, is not supplying any additional information that wasn't in Scripture, but he is helping them to see that the Bible is true and trustworthy so that they might ultimately anchor their confidence in God's Word, so that their confidence would rest in God and not man. So reason certainly can be a piece of, of the puzzle as God opens our eyes. Reason is good and helpful. There are times when we have to say in, in Christian life and as we reason through what we believe, there are times when we do have to say this is a mystery. We can't ultimately understand how the Trinity works or the 
dual natures of Christ as both fully God and fully man, how that works. There are secret things that belong to God, and yet Christ's approach with his disciples after the resurrection was not, the Bible says so, so I'm not going to give you any other evidence. Uh, You should have known this. How dare you ask questions, believers? But his attitude is even though you should have known this, and I do want you to trust in Scripture alone, here is proof, here is evidence to help you trust in Scripture. So reason can be helpful, God can and does use it, but it cannot be the ultimate ground of our confidence, and it cannot solve our most fundamental problem, because our basic problem as human beings is not a natural one, not fundamentally a rational issue or philosophical debate or a historical inquiry. Our problem is a spiritual problem, and it requires a supernatural solution. We need help from outside of ourselves. We need God to bring dead hearts to life in the first place. And we continue to need God to sustain our spiritual life, even as Christians. So we don't overcome our unbelief by strengthening our resolve or sharpening our arguments. We cry out to God, help our unbelief. So that's the first point, spiritual problem that requires a supernatural, a divine solution. So how does God provide that? How does he help our unbelief? What tools or means does God work through? This leads us to the next couple of points here. And the first one, I've already let it slip this week and last week, should be no surprise to you based on what I've been saying. It is the word of God. Christ has diagnosed the problem as a spiritual one. Our our hearts are slow to trust what God has spoken through the prophets. That's what he says. And now Christ addresses the problem in a way that might seem unexpected by showing them what the prophets say, by showing them Christ in all of Scripture. Jesus says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And he gives them the ultimate Sunday school lesson, of course, beginning with Moses and working through all the prophets. He interpreted interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. We don't immediately see the fruit of this lesson, apart from these two disciples apparently realizing there's something different about this guy and, and insisting that he come and stay with them. But later on, those two disciples will look back and see that their hearts were burning as Jesus opened the scriptures to them on the road. Their hearts had been slow to believe, and Jesus lit a fire underneath their slow hearts. And it seems to us that this can't possibly be the way that it should work. If people don't trust the Bible to begin with, then then how can we start with the Bible? We can't start with the Bible. We've got to start with something else, some kind of rational argumentation or or something to convince them that the Bible is true first. At least that's what folks like Andy Stanley keep saying. But Jesus addresses their unbelief in Scripture by opening the Scriptures to them, by teaching them from Scripture. And all he had, by the way, was the Old Testament. And that's because God works through his word. 
For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, says the Lord our God. The word of God created the universe is the word that creates and sustains our faith, our trust, and our confidence in him. This is how God helps our unbelief and fires up our slow hearts. The primary tool is not personal or mystical experiences, not signs or wonders, not even arguments and evidence which can be helpful, but the word of God. Because again, remember, our fundamental problem is not that we lack reason or eyes to to see. We lack the desire to see. And that's why in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Uh, What does Abraham say to the, the rich man who wants Lazarus to be sent back from the dead to warn his brothers? He said, they've got Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. And that seems strange to us. If you saw somebody raised from the dead, how could you not believe? Well, I think a lot of folks who are committed atheists, if you asked them, you know, what if somebody were, you saw somebody raised from the dead, would you, would you believe then? Would most likely say, I would just think that something's wrong with my mind at that point. The fundamental problem is that we don't want to believe, whether it's the word of God or something else. And so God's spirit working through his word is what we most need. One theologian from the time of the Reformation expressed it this way, that the word of God is the instrument by which the Holy Spirit both begets and nurtures our faith. And as this helpful analogy, we cannot separate faith from the scriptures any more than we can separate a ray of sunlight from the sun, which is its origin. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the Apostle Paul says. We know Christ through the word of God, and we come to trust him by the Spirit's work in our hearts through that same word. Another uh, important sub-point for us to take note of here as we talk about the word of God. Jesus asserts that he himself is the subject of all of Scripture, which at that time was only the Old Testament. The New Testament uh, had not been written, obviously, by that first Easter Sunday. Moses, all the prophets, all the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. We don't know Christ apart from the scriptures, and we don't rightly know the scriptures apart from Christ, even the Old Testament. It's not simply reading the Old Testament. It's seeing how it points us to the cross of Christ. So our task is not to mine the scriptures primarily for a to-do list, a guide for living, rules or principles for marriage or parenting or dating or work or relationships, leadership, politics, finances. Our task as a church, my task as a servant of the word, is to preach Christ in all of scripture, to show that the Messiah would suffer, enter into his glory, the glory of Christ, the glory of God, demonstrated by the word of God which testifies to Christ not to give you a list of practical takeaways for you to work through on Monday through Friday but to remind you of what Christ did for you 
on that Friday through Sunday, his death, burial, and resurrection. And of course, it would have been brilliant if we could have been there while Jesus was giving them this Sunday school class to end all Sunday school classes, right? If I could at least get the notes on the part where he talks about the genealogies, you know, Chronicles 1 through 8 or something, or, you know, did, did he mention the Nephilim, what, what's going on there, or the Song of Songs, how do these things point to Christ? You know, I, I do believe in the clarity of Scripture, as I said earlier, but clear doesn't always mean easy. Uh, some things are, are difficult and, and take work, but that's the task that's before us, to open up the Scriptures expecting to see Christ, for God to speak and show us Christ cause our eyes to see his majestic love and authority. So Jesus preached the whole counsel of God, all the scriptures, and he preached Christ in all of scriptures. If we want to grow in our faith, if we want to grow in our confidence, if we want to grow in our assurance, and if we want to see the lost come to faith in Christ for the first time, we must devote ourselves to that same task that the risen Christ modeled on the first Easter morning to preach the Christ of Scripture from the whole of Scripture. Well, moving to our, uh, I guess, third point and, and second way that God confirms our, our confidence. Astute observers may have noticed that Cleopas and Miscellaneous didn't immediately recognize Jesus when he taught them the Bible. Their hearts were burning, the Spirit was working, but as verse 35 tells us, as they, they put it, Jesus was finally known in the breaking of bread. Jesus uh, broke the bread and gave it to them, and that's when their eyes were finally opened and they recognized him. If you read commentaries, uh, scholars like to split hairs over whether this meal, this breaking of bread, whether that was them observing the Lord's Supper or not. But in any case, it clearly points us to the Lord's Supper. Look at the words Jesus uses, or Luke uses, rather, to, to describe this. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That is just really echoing language from other accounts of the Lord's Supper. Not only that... But remember that Jesus is their guest here. He's a guest in their home. But he takes over the meal and starts serving them as host. It's the host's job to, to give thanks, to break bread. Jesus is either being very rude by their standards or he's making a point and Jesus is not being rude. The point is that Jesus is the host. He is the one who welcomes us to the feast. He came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for us. And that's what the Lord's Supper is designed to remember, the self-giving, sacrificial service of our Savior. So the Lord's Supper or communion, it's not that it's magical or mystical, depending on how you define mystical. We don't believe the bread and the cup are mysteriously transformed into Jesus' body or blood or anything else. We don't believe that partaking makes us any more justified in the eyes of God, any more righteous. But it does help us to know 
Christ. The Spirit uses communion along with the Scriptures, not apart from the Scriptures, but along with them, to nurture and strengthen the faith of believers, to help us to grow in confidence. So in today's text, the Spirit worked to show them Christ in the Word of God, and that work was, in a sense, confirmed or or completed or, or really crystallized in the breaking of bread. Many traditions helpfully talk about communion as a sign and a seal. A sign is something that points us to something else, right? In this case, the work of Christ. And a seal, if you think of it like when you have something notarized, there's a stamp, there's a seal, it confirms that something is is real, is genuine, is true. And so as a sign, communion points us not inwardly to our own hearts, And not to the moment of communion itself, but to the cross of Christ, to the work of Christ. And yes, the Bible does give us a call to examine ourselves as we approach the table and admonition not to partake in an unworthy manner. But once we are at the table, our task is no longer to examine ourselves, but to examine Christ and his work on our So our goal is not to stir up in ourselves the proper attitude or emotional state as we sit and hold the cup while the music plays, but to remember the body of Christ that was broken for you, the blood of Christ that was shed for you, and that you have a right to a seat at God's table, not based on what's in your own heart or mind at that moment, but because Jesus died and rose again. This is the blessed truth that the Word of God confirms for us and that communion seals for us. The more we focus on ourselves internally, the more we miss the point of the Lord's Supper. It's not about the emotional or spiritual work that we are trying to do as we partake of communion. It's a sign and seal of the work that Christ Jesus has already done. So, one key takeaway as we prepare to conclude this morning is how vital our gathered worship is and the things we do here are for our confidence in the gospel, our growth in our faith. Many people today tend to separate our our growth and our discipleship from our worship Together, I've heard many people, even some pastors, confidently assert that growth does not and cannot happen on Sunday morning. Sunday is perhaps an evangelistic event for reaching unbelievers, or maybe it's a sort of pep rally that just gets us energized to face the week. But real growth can't happen here while we're just sitting and passively listening to the preaching of the word and receiving communion. The assumption there is that what we most need in order to grow is to be actively engaged in in doing something. Growth happens in small group Bible study or an accountability partnership or a biblical counselor's office or my private prayer and Bible study on my own, all of which are good things. But the core of our growth, the ordinary means of God's sustaining grace, is not anything we do but it is what we receive. Word and sacrament. Christ preached in all of Scripture and Christ made known in the breaking of bread. So what if the passive nature, we can call it that, of Sunday morning, what if that's not a bug 
but a feature? What if the point is precisely as this, that what we most need is to receive what God has given, that we are utterly dependent upon him, that it's not fundamentally a reciprocal relationship where he gives us something and we even pay him back, but we need simply to receive what he has given with thanksgiving to his glory. We are sinful creatures. We needed a savior who is not merely our example, but our substitute, who lived the perfect life, the perfect righteousness, perfect obedience that we never could have accomplished and didn't even want to. He did that on our behalf and that he suffered to pay the debt that we never could have repaid. We needed God to send us such a savior and we further need God to open our minds and our hearts to receive such a savior And we, even on this side of our conversion, need God's Spirit to continue in our hearts to grow our confidence in this salvation by pointing our eyes to Christ. Our fundamental problem is still a spiritual problem, and it requires a supernatural solution. The solution did not come from us, and it wasn't even discovered by us. Dr. Michael Horton, reflecting on this passage, observes, God is never revealed. God always reveals himself. In other words, we cannot discover or make our way to God by our own exploration or experimentation or deliberation. None of us is here because we found God. We can't find him, and what's worse, we didn't even want him. To find him. We were in our sin, as Romans 1 says, working really hard to avoid finding him. This is the gospel 101. We don't find God. God found us. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And through the word of God, he makes Christ known to us. Through the word of God, he invites us to come and to share in the feast that he has provided. He has prepared, provided everything, everything that we need. And all that is left for us to do is to come and receive. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge our complete dependence on you. Apart from your power and your purposes, we would not even exist. It is your word, your speaking, that called the heavens and the earth into existence, that formed the sea and the dry land, the sun and the moon, and that shaped us and gave us life. And we acknowledge that we are sinful creatures, that we rebelled against our creator. Though you gave us life, we owe you everything. Yet we, in our sinfulness, don't want to acknowledge you, don't want to honor you, did not want to give thanks to you or live for you. And we became foolish. Our hearts were darkened, but we thank you 
that you are a God of such grace, such mercy, that you would show your righteousness by giving it to us in Christ, sending your Son to take on human flesh, to live in obedience to your word, and to die for our disobedience. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we further thank you that you have, through your word, through your gospel, transformed our hearts, brought us from death to life through the resurrection of our risen Lord Jesus. It's only through your working in us that we ever could have come to trust in his work. Lord, we this morning cry out that we do believe but we need help, ongoing help with our unbelief. We are still prone to wander, as we sang earlier, still prone to doubt. Would you open your word to us through the things that we have heard this morning and We've heard before and will hear uh, through your word. Open our hearts to see Christ. To see him and to know him. This is the only thing that can light a fire under our slow hearts. The only thing that can get us to let go of the idols that we've been serving instead is to see the peerless worth of Christ, that he is better, that we have such a Savior full of truth and grace and mercy. Help us to see him, to know him, that we might grow in our confidence and that we might be transformed, that 